Hi, Doxology. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kyle. I'm a member here, and I'll be doing the scripture reading tonight. Uh, tonight, we are going to be in Psalm 16. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open to that book. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles up front for you. You're free to take one of those as our gift to you. Uh, or obviously, you can look on your phone, or if you're at home, you can look on your computer. Uh, again, we are in Psalm 16. Preserve, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, or take the, their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. Well, good evening, Doxology. It's good to be back with you, and it's so good to see more of you uh, joining us. Um, yeah, that's, that's a wonderful thing. And for those of you who are new with us, who are, maybe it's one of your first few times or your first time ever, we're so glad that you're here. As Luke mentioned in the beginning, regardless of what your spiritual background is, if you've been in the church for a long time, or if you're just checking things out, uh, we're thrilled to have you, and we just hope you see the, um, how beautiful our Savior Jesus Christ is. And so uh, what we're doing this summer is we are spending a few months in the Psalms. And the reason why we're doing this is because especially in an area like Arlington and D.C. that's so highly educated and we love information. Uh, we don't want to become, if you will, hypocritical Christians where we know a lot of information about God, but we don't actually know God ourselves, um, spending time with him. And so I hope now that we're in our sixth or seventh week, hopefully some of you guys have started to rewire your habits, even if it's slowly, and have experienced some of the joy of spending time with the Lord firsthand and actually talking to him in your happy moments and in your not happy moments. And we're using the Psalms because, one of the reasons we're using the Psalms is because this was the main book that Jesus used for talking to the Lord. Um, and when, when he was on the cross, you know, somebody once put it, when Christ was on the cross, two things came out of Jesus, blood and psalms. Like the psalms were so much a part of Jesus that he quoted them in his, in his moment of greatest agony. And so if the psalms were good enough for Jesus to use to pray, then they're good enough for us. And so we're using it as a, a language on how to pray. And so what Psalm 16 is about is it's essentially a prayer for security. So it's a prayer for how do you pray to the Lord and what process do you go through when you feel like like one of the foundations of your life has been stripped away from you. And so let's look at the psalm under these two headings. Uh, first, we'll just look at the need for security. And then number two, we'll look at how do we get security. So number one, the need for security that we have. And then number two, how do we get security when we realize the foundation of our life has been stripped away? Okay, so first, number one, the need for security. So verse one. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So David is not stoic as he's praying this. This is a visceral cry from the heart. 
as he's crying out, you know, preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. And so David, he's in the midst of a dangerous, tumultuous time in his life. We went through Samuel last year. David went through some hard stuff. And so David's asking, like, when the anchor that I've been grabbing onto and the foundation that I've been standing on has been stripped away, like, where can I go to plant my feet on something secure? And this need for an anchor, uh, this need for constancy, right? This is such a fundamental need of our lives. So, I mean, a very easy example is last year when COVID hit, you know, understandably, many of us were afraid to leave our homes. Many of us were afraid to even have people in our homes. Why? Because we wanted the predictability and security of physical health. Uh, but it goes so far beyond that, this desire for constancy. So I was, I was thinking about one of the first times in my life I realized just how topsy-turvy life is. And it's a small example, but uh, so I have an older brother. He's four years older than me, and we're fortunate to be very close. And when I was 15, I was, you know, part of that family road trip that some of you guys have probably been a part of when you take a sibling to school. And so we drive up north, uh, we drop him off at his college, and, you know, we spend the whole day cleaning his dorm. We take four trips to Walmart, you know, get his dorm room all situated. And when it came for that moment for me to get back in the minivan with my parents and hug my brother goodbye, when his arms wrapped around me, it was just like the, the floodgates broke, and I just started crying. And is that because I'm a softy? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe because I'm just a softy. No, what, was, what I didn't realize until that moment was my brother was a refuge of mine. Like, so it wasn't just that I was going to miss those fun moments of late night trips to the ice cream store, playing video games late into the evening, but like, he was my foundation. So, I mean, my brother, he taught me how to play th- any sport I was good at. It was because my brother taught me how to play it. Uh, my brother taught me how to be cool. It won't be a surprise to you that I had a hard time just being cool and great. Why are some of you laughing? Um, that I had a hard time being cool and great. My, my brother taught me how to do that. Uh, he kept me physically safe. There was literally a time where he kept me from being physically beat up uh, because he was my brother. And so I had, you know, I had protection through him because he was nearby. And all of a sudden, this refuge that I had was being taken away. And that was, you know, one of many moments as I got older that I just realized, you know, Luke mentioned it in his prayer to open, like so many relationships we have fall apart. You know, our jobs aren't as stable as we think. You, know, you name it, right? Things in life are so fragile. And so the, the heart of the psalm is, you know, what do I do when the, when the foundations that I have have been taken away? And like, think about as we go through the psalm, think about it this way, because there are times in your life, right, that are so sweet that you're not really thinking about much other than, you know, my next trip to a really good brewery or winery or to see a good show or get together with friends. But there are some seasons where something is, is so troubling, right? That it's, it's like your whole gaze just gets narrowed down into, I just need to survive. Like, can I just make it through the next year? Can I just make it through the next month? And what anchor do I have to hold on to? And what's beautiful about the drama of this psalm is David does, just doesn't just say, okay, when you feel like your foundation's been taken away, when you feel vulnerable, go to God. Let's close, let's close in prayer. The answer is God. That shouldn't be surprising. This is the Bible. We're in church. But that's not the drama of the psalm. What the drama of the psalm is, how does David go from a place where in verse 1, all he can do is cry out, preserve me, to verse 9 through 11, where emotionally, he is now at a point where he's saying, my heart, it's not just I'm secure, but my whole being rejoices. 
Like, so David, he goes from crying out to how does he get to in a place where not just intellectually, but emotionally, he actually feels secure. And he comes to a place of deep trust, regardless of his circumstances. Like, if you had that, that'd be something, right? And this didn't come naturally to David. This was hard fought for David, but this is a discipline we can work on, and he shows us how to do this, okay? So that's just, that's our need for security. And so next we're going to look at how do we go about getting security when we feel vulnerable or when we're in that part of our lives where we feel like we just need to survive, okay? And there, there's a lot in here, but we'll just look at three principles uh, in this psalm that David shows us. And it's not a magic formula, but it's, these are principles to practice as you grow as a believer, and so th- these are the three things we see. He says you need to pray through your commitments, you need to pray through your contentments, and you need to pray your confidence. Okay, so pray through your commitments, or just look at your commitments, your contentment, and your, and your confidence. Okay. I don't normally alliterate because I think sometimes it's cheesy, but this time it just happened. Okay, so three C's. All right, so first, your, your commitments. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So David says, the first thing I do when my vision's getting narrow and I feel vulnerable is I check my heart for other gods. And so now when David was king of Israel, the land of Israel was filled with other gods because there were lots of other people groups who were still living in the land of Israel. And you had all these gods, and each god uh, was a lord over a particular domain or sphere of life. And you would go and you would sacrifice to these gods because they, pra- they, um, they promised success in your endeavor. And they also promised security, like security from, you know, the uh, unpredictabilities of life. And so if you were about to make a business deal, you would go to the god of commerce and you would make a sacrifice to it. And that god would grant you success and also help protect you from your business venture going poorly. If you wanted to pursue a love relationship, or if you were married and you wanted kids, and you would go to the God of romance or the God of fertility and make a sacrifice and trust that that God would grant you success in your romantic endeavors or help you produce a child. And, like, this, this makes sense, right? If there are gods that promise to do these things for you, then you're going to go make a sacrifice to it. And so David says, like, have I latched on to one of these gods? And this may sound, if you've been attending this church for a while, and you've heard us talk about this a number of times, but it's easy for us to read this and think, oh yeah, back then when they had gods that they would sacrifice to, well, you know, a number of modern, even people who aren't Christians who are sociologists and thoughtful cultural commentators have commented on the fact that even though many modern people, we don't view ourselves as religious, we're still very religious, and that we place the weight of deity on certain things to, you know, protect us or satisfy us. So in this area, for like, some examples of things that we place the weight of deity on are our image, you know, like holistically. So do people view me as an intelligent person? Do people view me as an attractive person, as a successful person? Uh, romance, you know, having a love relationship is a huge one. Career success, that's, a, that's another huge one. And so even in our day and age, yeah, we may not bow before an altar literally, but metaphorically we do. Because what happens, right, is when we bow at the altar of a god and we place the weight of deity on it, what happens is, is when that thing, whether it's, you know, romance or my career is going well, we feel great. But if it's not going well, we feel crushed. And uh, you know, every few weeks I read about people who give an honest reflection about this. Um, and, you know, just, well, I don't know how long ago, like, what was the exact date that she posted this, but I, I loosely follow the Marvel universe and... I always feel scared to start talking about pop 
like pop references and famous people because I often get their names wrong and what. But I believe her name is uh, Evangeline Lilly, and you know she she plays Wasp in the movie Ant Man and the Wasp, and she also played uh, that character. She played Kate in the you know in the TV series, the ABC series Lost, like that series that so many people like that I still don't understand why people like it, but it was a popular series in you know 2004 to 2010 time frame, and. It was just, it was so honest. So what she was talking about is she said, you know, I grew up in a very poor family and my parents were barely scraping by, but they were one of the, they were some of the happiest people that I ever knew, even though they didn't have much money. And then later on, they came into a lot of money in their life, but their happiness stayed the same. And she said, for me, when I first got my, like I was pursuing, I was running after a a career in acting. And when I got that breakthrough in Lost, where all of a sudden I was one of the most well-known characters in one of the most well-known shows, she said, at the start of that series, I was driving a beat-up pickup truck with duct tape as its back window, and I was living in low-income housing. And I thought that as my fame went up, my happiness would go up as well. But she said, actually, the more famous I became, the less happy I became. You know, there are a number of reasons that that, that happened. Um, you know, a lot of pressure that she was feeling from, from other people, but also just the feeling, like the hollowness that she was feeling when she thought, finally, her soul would be satisfied, and it wasn't. And what she's getting at, she's getting at what David says here in verse 4, is, notice he says, the the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So it's not just that when you go after another God, it's a neutral thing, but your sorrows actually increase. And so, as you think about your life, um, think about what David's saying here is the danger for the believer isn't necessarily atheism, but the danger is a practical polytheism, right? Where you say, on the one hand, I believe in Jesus, but see the verb, those who run after another God? But the real God you're running after is something other than Jesus. And David's, I mean, in modern terms, David's saying, your spouse or the spouse you want to have will make a terrible God for you. Your career will make a terrible God for you. A particular lifestyle you're looking for will make a terrible God for you. Because anytime you place the weight of deity on something, it's always going to, that's not God, it's going to lead to sorrow. Uh, How Paul puts this in Romans 1 is he says, when people deny God, it's not that they then walk into agnosticism or atheism. He says, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and begin worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so when you place the weight of deity on a created thing, it's always going to lead to more sorrow. And you know, so just as an application here is, you know, let's get back to the main idea of the text. Is you, like, how do you find security? So, not always, but so many times when you begin to feel either discontent or, you know, you can't fall asleep or you wake up in the middle of the night because you have these thoughts racing through your head. Often the reason why is because it's a matter of your commitment or your fundamental allegiance is to a different God instead of Jesus, who's the only sure foundation. Like so many of the, the moments over the, over the past year where I began to feel really discontent or extremely anxious, I have to stop and think, oh, that's because right now I'm looking at the health of my family or I'm looking at, you know, the, the state of our church, be it individuals in our church who I'm worried about or our church corporate. Like I have put the weight of God onto these things to give me what only God can do and that's why I feel so unstable. So that's the first thing David says is first check your heart for other gods when you feel unsafe, when you feel vulnerable. Okay, so that's the first thing, commitments. Next he says, uh, how do you find contentment, okay, when you, when you feel insecure? 
And we see this in verse 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So here when David says the lines have fallen for me in pleasant, in pleasant places, uh, what commentators say is he's referring to when the Israelites entered the land, uh, God divided up the land. He partitioned it based on their tribe. And so just like where you live right now in your apartment or your home, you know, you have boundary markers that separate where you can walk with your feet and do whatever you want from your neighbors. And same thing when the Israelites went into the promised land, uh, the tribe of Gad had a different area from Dan, from Reuben, you know, from uh, Manasseh. And they all had these partitions of land that they had, and these were the boundary markers. And how does this relate to our text? And so here there's a, a pastor named uh, Hunter Beaumont, who's a pastor in our uh, church planning network. And he gave a—because I've always wondered, like, what does this actually mean? And he gave a really helpful treatment on this. And so I'm just sharing with you what I heard from him. And so, in other words, when the Israelites went into the land and they were given a lot, and then, you know, everybody moves in and they plant their tent or whatever, and they start living there, within those boundary markers— you had blessings, but you also had challenges. So within your boundary marker, you had blessings. So you had things like fertile soil that you could plant in. You had trees. You had streams that you could fish in or jet ski in. But then you also had challenges. So you had enemies that were still in the land. You had foreign gods that were still in the land, both of which were dangerous. And what the job of the people was in this moment where you have rich blessings, but also real dangers— is you're supposed to take, they were supposed to take the good things that they had and cultivate them and use them, not for themselves, but for God's glory. But also, what they were to do is they were to take the real challenges that were in their section of land and use those as an opportunity to deepen their trust in the Lord. Because only God could help them with these, you know, monumental challenges that they were facing. And so you see what David's saying is he's looking at his life and he's saying, okay, what I have in front of me is I have blessings, and I have challenges. And my challenges actually aren't an obstacle to contentment. My, these, op- these challenges aren't an obstacle to security. They're actually the means by which I feel more secure. Because the challenges in my life, you see, they actually force me to run to the only strong tower and refuge there is, God himself. And so as you look at your life, it's such a helpful, not, not just helpful, but more rich way of viewing your life. Because often, right, we look at the blessings, we think, okay, God's being so good to me here. But then we look at the, the other things we have that are real challenges, and we're thinking, why hasn't God fixed this yet? Instead of viewing those things that we have actually as an opportunity to trust the Lord, who's our ultimate strong tower and refuge. And here's how, um, you know, many of you know, uh, early started acquainted with Dr. Scott Redd, who's a teacher of mine. He preached here a couple months ago. So he was talking about this idea how we all have felt needs. So things that aren't our deepest need, but there are felt needs and they're real, right? So we have things like, you know, we have a, a, we have a desire for more income, or we have a desire for a spouse, or we have a desire for our current spouse to be behaving differently than they are. Or we have a desire for our mental health to be better, right? For our depression to go away or for our anxiety to go away. Like, these are, they're real, but they're not our deepest needs, which are, which are union with Christ, right? And eternity with the Lord. And so here's what he says about this as we think about, you know, the challenges or the felt needs in our lives and the blessings in our lives. And he says, following Christ and being in his kingdom doesn't mean your felt needs are immediately remedied. 
Okay, so be careful with anyone who teaches if you start following Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. Okay, so your felt needs aren't immediately remedied. But what it does mean is you adopt a different perspective on your felt needs. So you see that your felt needs, rather than become bad things, they actually become gifts. Opportunities to encounter Christ is the answer to your deepest desire for wholeness, for the full experience of his grace. We should not pretend that our current suffering or the lack that we have is easy, or that it's somehow not exactly what it is. It, it is suffering, and it should be grieved. But we grieve as those who have tasted wholeness. We grieve as those who are acquainted with the Christ who knows our hearts better than we know ourselves, and he receives us as his children. So you see, you see what he's saying is like when you have a, like a real felt need that you have, or you feel like you know, the foundation of your life has been taken away, when you have this perspective of the good things and the bad things and how God used them in your life, is it prevents you from that, you know, if you've been in some churches that take an overly pietistic approach that basically says, oh, you know, stop complaining about your desire for health or a lover or a career. Just Jesus is all you need. Just trust in Jesus and everything's going to be better. No, the, the psalmist isn't saying that. He's saying, no, these things, this pain that you experience, this ache that you experience is real. But on the other, on the other hand, it prevents you from deifying your felt needs. Right, especially in a, in a culture of, of victimhood where we feel like, like we need something, we just latch onto and fixate on that one thing that we, that we can't have or that we're not getting. And we just wallow in it and swim in it. But instead we learn to pray like David. See in verse 2 we say, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Not just a Lord, you're my Lord. Like I look at my son and not just you're a son, you're my son. Because <laughs> this is intensely personal language. He says in verse 5, you're my chosen portion and my cup. My cup is a, it's a phrase for experience. And because of this, I can take the blessings as really good things and rejoice in them, but I also don't need to despair or wallow when I have these unmet longings in my heart. As we see that the commitments we need to look at, number two, how we can actually be content in the moment as we see how God uses even the hard things. And then number three, we look at the confidence that we have. And we see this in verse 8 through 11. So he says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And so what David does, it's so helpful. What David's doing here is he said, when I feel insecure, instead of focusing my, focusing my gaze on what alarms me, I'm going to focus my gaze on what anchors me. Okay, so instead of fixating on what alarms me, I'm going to fixate on what anchors me. It's similar to, you know, in The Lion King when Simba, when he's with his father Mufasa, he feels so safe even when the hy- hyenas around because he's looking at his father who he knows is going to protect him and strengthen him. The same way, like David's saying, I'm not going to look at the hyenas. I'm going to look at, I'm going to look at my father, the one who cares for me and protects me. And he moves on. And as we jump into verses 9 to 11, just a little personal note. Um, when I was in, when I was 16 or 17 or so, uh, the worship pastor of the church I attended came to the youth group I was in, and he preached on Psalm 16. And all I remember from that sermon was verses 9 to 11. And, you know, he, he gave us a little card with verse 11 on it. Um, and I just hope that, you know, even if you take away anything from this evening, uh, hopefully some of the things we've looked at have been helpful already, but this, this final part of the psalm, is, is, it's the most beautiful, and, it, and it's supposed to be. Okay, so David says, now that I'm looking at my Lord, and I know I won't be shaken, he says what? Therefore, my heart is glad, 
my whole being rejoices. My flesh will also dwell secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that means the land of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. In your presence, or you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so what he's saying is it's not just that when I know the Lord, I can be secure, but there's actually, see in verse 9, my whole being overflows with joy. Like there's a satisfaction here. Not just I feel safe in a stoic way, but I've never been happier. And how does he get that? It's twofold. So first see verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And so what he's saying here is, you will not abandon my soul to the the land of the dead. In other words, I know that my friendship with God, my intimacy with God is so intense, it's so enduring that somehow, no matter what happens, God won't abandon me. But it's not because of my strength or my commitment to him, but it's going to be because of his strength and his commitment to me. And see, see the second part of verse 10. How is he going to do it? Or let your Holy One see corruption. And this confuses commentators because if you look at the personal pronouns leading up to verse 10, it's my, my, my. So verse 5, the Lord's my, my portion, my cup, my lot. Lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Uh, verse 7, my heart, you know, before me. Verse 9, my heart is glad. You get the idea. My, my, my. But then all of a sudden he gets to verse 10b and he says, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. So why doesn't he say you won't let me see corruption? And the reason is because God isn't going to let David see corruption, but it's not because of David. It's going to be because of somebody else. And the New Testament apostles pick up on this, and in Acts chapter 2, this was the first sermon after Jesus' ascension. Isn't like every psalm, almost every psalm so far has been quoted in the New Testament. Isn't that awesome? It's all one book. So Peter, remember cowardly Peter, he's preaching now to over 3,000 people at Pentecost, And everyone's listening to hear what he's going to say. And he says in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, he's talking about Jesus who was crucified. And he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, he's now talking about Psalm 16. He's quoting Psalm 16. For David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, land of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. And then he says, brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and was buried. Right? So David's still dead, and his tomb is still with us to this day. But because he was a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What Peter's saying here is beautiful. He's saying, remember when David prayed, God, you won't let your Holy One see corruption? See, David was a great king, but he still failed in the end. And that's because every single hero in the Bible always failed in the end, except one. And that's Jesus Christ. And because Jesus lived faithfully all the way to the end, God didn't let him, his Holy One, see decay. 
right? He raised him from the dead, and now that Jesus is ascended into heaven, and he's actually interceding for you and praying for you on your behalf, that you'll persevere and have joy. Now even the worst thing in life, death itself, can't take away anything, can't take away anything from you. But it gets better, because it's not just, and here's where it gets really good, because it's not just your flesh that's going to be preserved, but it's the experience you're going to have when you're brought into the new earth. And I'm highlighting this, well, first, because the psalmist is highlighting it. But number two, like, sometimes I talk with people, and I'm trying to show why the prospect of the new earth and the guarantee of it that we have in Christ is so exciting. And they say something, which makes sense. You know, they say something in the effect of, you know, I never really understood why the whole eternal life thing is appealing to people. Because my life is, like, I have some good moments, but there's also a lot of hard moments, too. And why would I want the current life that I have to just extend into perpetuity. Like, that doesn't sound that fun for me. And they have a point. But the reason why they, they do, and even I think a lot of us in the church don't long for this, is because our sights are so small. Like, we just have no idea. It's not going to be the same existence that we're experiencing now, but it's going to be a whole new order of existence. And so what does David say? He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. So the, the Hebrew word for that word presence is face. In your face, there is presence of joy. He's talking about the beatific vision. We sung it in our first song, Kingdom of God. Oh, how I long to see your face. I long for that day. Why? Because if you remember in, um, I think it was, yeah, the book of Exodus where Moses asked to see God's face. God said, no, you can't see my face because the splendor of it, the joy of it will kill you. Can you imagine, like, being filled with so much joy that it kills you? And David's saying, he's saying, somehow, I'm going to get what Moses asked for and didn't receive. This is so incredible, guys, because, so this is what David is longing for and what's guaranteed if you're in Christ. Um, this, This beatific vision of seeing God's face and being, like, just overflowed with pleasures and uh, one of the people who put it the best, and I'm going to continue to quote this essay until somebody else can put it better, is in C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. And he says in The Weight of Glory, um, he says, so many of the physical pleasures that we experience in life, as he put it, so many of the pleasures we enjoy today come from the creative rapture and bliss that God was in when he created the world. So many of the pleasures that we experience today come from the creative rapture and bliss that God was in when he created the world. And what he's getting at is places like Proverbs 8 and Job 38 and Psalm 8, which we looked at last week, where when God created the world, it was out of an overflow of his own joy. And what Lewis is saying is because God was overflowing with joy when he created the world, the physical pleasures that we experience are parts of God's joy that even in a fallen world are implanted in creation, and we taste them sometimes. So think of, like, why is it that sometimes when you hear a song or a piece of music, it's so beautiful that it actually takes your breath away? Or it's so beautiful that you play it on repeat over and over. I don't think I'm the only one who does this. Like, you can't stop listening to it. Or it's so good that you just, you just, maybe it's so good you cry. 
or moments with, with a friend over a meal that are so good. Or you think about, you know, moments with your body. So those of you who played sports, like moments on the playing field where your body just, everything clicked exactly it was supposed to in the moment of bliss that was. Or you look at something, a visual that's so beautiful, it just, it takes your breath away. Why are some sounds, why are some experiences so, so beautiful? And Lewis's point is, the reason that they are is they're, they're diluted experiences of the joy that is in God's being that he had when he created the world. And then he says in the essay, if some of these experiences that we have today are so good, you know, it's as if like a, a window opens and you feel the, the fresh breeze from the, from the new earth that we haven't quite set our feet on yet. These moments that have so much meaning, so much bliss that you want more of, but you can't quite grab. He says, if these moments are so good, what is it going to be like to taste at the fountainhead that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating. What is it going to be like to taste at the, the fountainhead? That stream of which even these lower diluted reaches prove to be so intoxicating. So in your presence there is fullness of joy. The promise of the psalm, the promise of Christ is the most intense pleasures you've ever had. Are, are nothing compared to the joy you're going to be over, overflowing with when you see Christ in the new heaven and new earth. It's not just the absence of pain. It's the positive presence of pleasure. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 says, when we see Jesus as he is, even when we hoped for this reality, we'll become purified. We'll have an anchor. Does that give you an anchor to hold on to? Yes, it absolutely does. It doesn't make the hard things that you're currently going through go away. You have the promise of something impossible. And so for someone like David who had so much regret in his life, like think about the guilt that David had, that David carried. I mean, he murdered one of his closest friends and took his wife into his own bed. He felt pretty guilty about that. And he knew somehow God wasn't even going to abandon a wretch like David, even though God was so just. And David didn't know how. We know how it is because of Jesus. And even though David had so many regrets, he had so many high hopes for his kingdom that didn't come to fruition. And he still could say with utter sincerity, my whole being rejoices and my flesh dwells secure because you make known to me the path of life in your presence, in your presence alone, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's no one worth running after more than Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we can uh, trust the psalm. Uh, one, because it's your word, and you can't lie. Uh, but number two, because of what Jesus secured for us, Lord. And so I pray that you will be with me and each person in here, Lord, that you will Certainly, we feel like the, the foundations of our lives are being stripped away, whether it's currently today or whether it happens 30 years from now. Father, that we will remember the promise of this psalm and the practice of this psalm, Lord, to throw away other gods that we're clinging to, uh, to be content with the lot that you've given us, um, to not compare our lot with the lots that other people have, uh, but just to look at you and know the promise that we have of seeing your face. I can't wait for that day. And it's in the name of our risen Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.